The epistle lesson appointed for this Sunday, as I was mentioning during the welcome, is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. This will also serve as the basis for the message this morning. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And out of respect for Christ, we rise to hear the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel is from St. Matthew, the 21st chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and he said, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. 
But afterward, that son changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, saying, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, well, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message is the epistle lesson from Philippians chapter 2. At this time, I highlight these first five verses. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is our text. Those of you who are here, please be seated. Well, in the name of Jesus Christ, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Maybe you have heard the story of Mother Teresa. A visitor was watching Mother Teresa as she ministered to a person who was covered with a gross-looking skin disease in a cockroach-infested hut. And the visitor, after watching Mother Teresa for a time, said, I wouldn't do that for all the money in the world. To which Mother Teresa replied, neither would I. Servanthood is like that. All the money in the world will not buy our loving acts of service. Over the years as a pastor, I've been so privileged to see people lovingly serve one another. Like I remember a a woman, a, a wife, who cared for her paralyzed, bedridden husband 24 7 after he had a stroke that left him paralyzed from the neck down. I think of a mom and a dad who provided care and support for their disabled daughter from the day that she was born. I think of a son who cared 24-7 for his aging mother until the day that she was received into the glories of heaven. And I think of a friend continuing to be a loyal friend to someone who repeatedly makes bad life decisions. Who comes to your mind when you think of someone who is an extraordinary servant. Truth be told, humility and servanthood does not go well with the popular wisdom that states winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. When this winning is everything, it's the only thing attitude raises its ugly head in our homes and in our communities, and yes, even in our churches, there are hurt feelings. There's neglect. There's conflict. There's division. 
There's riots even in the streets. We even see a nation divided. And worse, there's even sometimes souls that are lost to the Lord. The Bible teaches servanthood is everything. Humbling oneself, placing the needs of others ahead of our own, this is what is pleasing to God. And it's ultimately that which fosters harmony and unity between Christian brothers and sisters and even brings peace and harmony to some degree into our communities. And it certainly helps us evangelize people who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I mean, who wants to worship in or belong to a congregation characterized by conflict and ruled by egomaniacs? The Philippian Christians to whom Paul is addressing these words that I just read to you a few moments ago are partners in the gospel with him. These Philippian Christians have been very generously sharing their belongings with those who are in need. And they've been working together in partnership with St. Paul to share the name of Christ with other people so that other people might come to know Jesus as their Savior too. And yet as we read St. Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians, we learn that the mission and the ministry of the Philippian Christians is being undermined by two ego-centered members. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul mentions a conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. Both women have, as Paul says, contended by his side in the cause of the gospel. Now, we can only conjecture as, it, as to why it is that these two women are in conflict with one another, but it appears that these two servants of God fail to be servants to one another. Paul exhorts the members of the congregation to help these two women work through their conflict so that they can be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. According to St. Paul, we, you, you and me, you and I, we are to have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another and with other people in our, in our world, in our community. And what mindset is that? Well, according to an article that was published in the Pittsburgh Press many years ago, Joe Torrey, the one-time manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, was being interviewed by a TV announcer. And the TV announcer suggested that Torrey might be able to be a better manager if he managed from up in the broadcast booth, because he'd be able to see the whole field of play. And thoughtfully, Tory replied, but upstairs, you can't look into their eyes. In Jesus Christ, God chose to come down on the field so that he could look into our eyes. Paul tells us that although Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that he emptied himself. He set aside his equality with God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage while he lived here on earth. And so he took on flesh and blood and he became human in every way like us, but was without sin. Yes, God became a man to dwell among us. He came into our field of play so he could look into our eyes. And this meant that he became a servant. A servant 
to you and to me, a servant to the people who lived in his, in his day when he roamed here on earth, but he continues to be a servant even to this day. As Jesus said, he, had done, he has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he became a servant and he humbled himself. He placed our needs ahead of his own. And he was obedient, even enduring death on a cross. Yes, the Son of God, in his love for you and me and for all humanity, came down onto this field of play so that he could look into our eyes. As I was preparing this message, I wondered, what did the people who lived during Jesus' day see when they looked into his eyes? Because we're often told that when you look into someone's eyes, you can, you can learn a lot about that person. What do you think they saw when they looked into Jesus' eyes? Do you think they maybe saw sometimes anger? Like that time when he was overturning tables in the temple because he was so sickened by the commercialism that was found in the temple itself? Do you think they looked into his eyes and they saw frustration, maybe even exasperation, because his disciples seemed to be so dull at times? Exasperated maybe because they were refusing little children from coming to Jesus so that he might bless them? Do you think maybe people sometimes looked into Jesus' eyes and they saw sadness? Like when he heard of his friend Lazarus' death? Do you think people looked into his eyes and they saw hurt and betrayal? Like when Judas, one of his disciples, betrayed him with a kiss. Or do you think they looked into his eyes and they saw compassion? Compassion when Jesus felt compassion for those harassed and helpless people who had no shepherd? Do you think they looked into his eyes and saw anguish when abandoned on the cross by his heavenly Father for our sin? Do you think sometimes they looked into his eyes and they saw forgiveness? Like when he talked to that adulterous Samaritan woman. No doubt when they looked into his eyes, they saw sometimes love. Like when he looked at his weep, weeping mother who stood at the foot of his cross and he provided for her needs after his death. No doubt they looked into Jesus' eyes sometime and they saw joy. Like the time when he appeared to his disciples following his resurrection and he announced to them that he was alive. And no doubt they looked into his eyes at times and they saw hope. Like that time when he said to his disciples, now go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, I'm sure as people looked into the eyes of Jesus, they saw all kinds of emotions, and all kinds of those emotions revealed something about the heart and the love that Jesus had for the people of his day and he has for us today. If Jesus were to look into your eyes, what would he see? What would your eyes reveal right now? Might they reveal some shame? Guilt? Might he look into your eyes and see sorrow and sadness? Might he look into your eyes and see confusion, maybe fear? Might he look into your eyes and see weariness and hurt, maybe some anger? Would he look into your eyes and see compassion? Would he look into your eyes and see joy, love, hope? Jesus looks into our eyes and 
we look into his eyes, and what do we see? Well, in holy baptism, Jesus looks into our eyes. He comes to us in the font, in the font, when we're being baptized. And he, he comes to us, and he looks into our eyes, and what does he see? He sees loneliness, and he sees, he sees need, because we're needy, because of our sin, because we're lost without him. And he looks into our eyes, and that's what he sees. But we look into his eyes, and what do we see? We see joy. We see joy in the eyes of our Savior because, you see, that which was lost is now found. That which was once orphaned is now adopted into the family of God. In absolution, when we confess our sins and he absolves us of our sin, what do we see when, we look, when he looks into our eyes? Well, when he looks into our eyes, he sees maybe shame, guilt, remorse, sorrow. And we look back into his eyes, and what do we see? We see compassion, forgiveness, love. When we come to the Lord's table, as we do sometimes, Jesus meets us there, and he looks into our eyes. And what does he see? He sees, I think, well, many things, but he probably sees sometimes confusion, weariness, longing, hurt. And what do we see when we look into his eyes at that communion table? We see love. We see acceptance. And we see hope. For he's given us a foretaste of the feast that awaits us in paradise. Humility and servanthood, well, they begin with confession with an honest appraisal of our shortcomings, especially in relationship to God. As we confess, God, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, it's like we're dismounting from the saddle of pride and arrogance and selfishness. And we're confessing that it's impossible by our own sinful nature to, to have that attitude of Christ, of one of humility and servanthood. We can't do it regularly and consistently but as we look into the eyes of our suffering servant, the servant of all servants, whose crown was, a thorn, was, was made of thorns, who was naked but for a loincloth, who's anchored to the cross by nails, hammered into his feet and, sigh, or his feet and, and hands, we realize that he humbled himself to the point of death for me and for you and for all the people of this world. And as we gaze upon the sacrificed Christ, our Savior, the Lamb slain for the sins of the world, your sins and mine, he has a way of making us want to love and serve other people. St. Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This next paragraph that I'm going to share with you really echoed and resonated with what I said actually on Palm Sunday. In fact, some of the exact words, I look back at that sermon, some of the exact words I'm going to say were said on Palm Sunday when we gathered in worship. But they're words that we need to hear again and again 
Because you see, we depend on the Spirit of the Lord to mold us and to shape us into humble people. We rely on the Spirit of the Lord to plant and grow feelings and actions of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and humility in our hearts. These gifts are acquired by the Spirit of the Lord as He works in our life through God's Word. And it's living in constant communion with the suffering servant through his word and sacraments and being held accountable and encouraged by other people that we become less absorbed with ourselves and more concerned for the interests of others. It's as we live in the love and the forgiveness of Christ that we live less and less by the model, I am my own, and more and more by the model, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? You are more important to me than I am to me. Then we're ready to say, you know what? I am wrong. You are right. We're willing to swallow our pride and to accept responsibility for our actions. When we live in the love and the forgiveness of Christ, we we don't see another person according to their skin color or their party affiliation or their religion, or whatever it is that might divide us. But instead, we see one another with the eyes of Christ from his perspective of how he sees people. And how does Christ see people? As someone whom he created. As someone who he calls to repent of their sin and to receive his forgiveness as someone with whom he desires an everlasting relationship. Is it impossible for us to have this servant mindset of Christ? Well, from our sinful nature, yes. As I mentioned a moment ago, we can't do it consistently, regularly, every day it seems, because we give in to the sinful desires of our flesh that cause us to be curved in on ourselves. But is it impossible? No. No. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, including being a servant like Christ. Our Lord gives us grace to serve. D. Elton Trueblood said, If you are a Christian, then you're a minister. A non-ministering Christian That's a contradiction in terms. Christian service or servanthood is done in the little things. Fred Craddock said, and I quote, To live my life for Christ would appear to be glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. And we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. Craddock continues, but the reality for most of us is that God sends us to the bank and he has us cash in that $1,000 for quarters. And we go through life putting our 25 cents here and our 50 cents there. Like listening to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost. Or going to a committee meeting or caring for our elderly parent or visiting a person in the hospital or swallowing our venomous words when we've been wrongfully attacked providing food and clothing and shelter for our family and maybe for others who are in need. Usually living our life for Christ is inglorious. 
It's done in all of those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. Francis de Sales said, the test of a preacher is that his congregation goes away saying, not what a lovely sermon, but I will do something. I pray that after listening to this message, you'll not say, oh, what a lovely sermon. But instead you'll say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something this week. I'm going to do something today. I'm going to look for ways to serve other people, to place their needs ahead of my own. And I'm going to do it 25 cents and 50 cents at a time, those acts of love and service. I'm going to, in a little way, make a difference in their lives, and in so doing, reveal the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ to them. And I hope that you do these 25 and 50 cent acts of love and service because you realize that you, yourself, have been united with Christ in your baptism. You have been comforted by his love through the preaching of the gospel, and you're filled with the tenderness and the compassion of Christ because the Holy Spirit lives in fellowship with you through his word. Amen.